First Timothy chapter three, the end of First Timothy chapter three, uh, sermon series. You can't really see that picture. It's fight the good fight, and uh, we will finish up chapter three today and start chapter four. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he now turns his attention away from talking about the qualifications for elders and deacons, and now he's going to talk about the churches uh, where they're serving. And I have to say, I'm actually really excited about this text. Um, it is not one that is as commonly known as some of the verses that we've studied uh, but it might be my personal favorite section of the letter. Okay, so here we go. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Notice he says, I want you to know, church, how you ought to behave. Okay? Now, it is true, and the Apostle Paul is the one who taught us this. We have freedom in Christ Jesus. But it is also true that God has expectations of his people, even after the gospel. Okay, so sometimes we kind of get this twisted, and it's very important. Um, yes, we have freedom in Christ. We also are supposed to behave a certain way. So we're going to look at that today. And I'm grateful that the Apostle Paul has providentially, uh, he, was, he was delayed from visiting this church in Ephesus, and that he felt the need to write this letter so that we now have it, because it's important. God knew that his church throughout history needed to hear these things. Needed to read these things, needed to study this, not just the local church in first century Ephesus. He says to us, we are the household of God. We are the church of the living God, and we are meant to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So in other words, together we have a calling and a purpose, not just as individuals. Notice he says the word household. That's the same word that was used earlier in the chapter to talk about the families of the elders and deacons. So likewise, the church is God's family. And just as parents should have no favorites among their children, we are equally loved by God, our Father, as brothers and sisters. We are siblings in the household of faith. There is no favoritism in Christ. Okay? God doesn't love one group of people more than he loves another group of people within the church. God does not love elders more than he loves new believers in Christ. Okay? And so we are uh, the church. We are the household. We are the family of God. But he also says we're the church or the assembly, the ecclesia of the living God. 
We are conscious that God promises to actually be among us by His Spirit. God is not a cold and distant deity, right? He is a present reality for us. He is active and He's alive and He's concerned for us. And then finally says we're meant to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Okay, so these are construction terms. And in construction terms, he's talking about the load-bearing part of the building. Okay, so in his letter to the same church, to Ephesians, Paul has already taught that the church has Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, also a construction idea, right? And that the apostles and the prophets make up the foundation And so he's now adding to that metaphor. He's saying that we, the church, are like the framing of the building, right? We hold fast to the truth and we raise it up to be seen by the world. Kind of a kind of a cool metaphor. Okay, so that's the that's the three ways that Paul describes the church. But now he gives a summary of of the truth that we're supposed to be holding fast to and holding up, the truth of the gospel. Verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay? Now, if you can't tell, and if you're looking in your Bibles, it actually even looks more like this. This was probably like an early poem or hymn or creed that was used by the early church to describe what they believed about Jesus And commentators kind of debate the correct way to see the structure of this poem. But I prefer to read it as three couplets. And so I printed it up there that way so that you could see it. You've got flesh and spirit, angels and nations, world and glory. Okay. And this was the way that this was the view of John Stott, um, who interprets these couplets as First, the revelation of Jesus, okay, so in the flesh and by the Spirit. The witnesses of Christ as Messiah, so you've got the angels and the nations. And then the recognition of Christ, first by the world and then in glory. Okay, so one way to read it. However you choose to read it, it's clear that Paul wants his church to focus on what? Jesus, right? And who is Jesus? Why did Jesus come to earth? What was his message? What did he accomplish, right? That's the mystery of the kingdom. And that's the basis of the gospel. And I think it's worth mentioning that this verse, verse 16, stands at almost the physical center of the letter of 1 Timothy. 
So right in the middle of everything that Paul has to say about how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to run the church, right in the middle of it, he puts this verse. And it's clear that those instructions about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to run the church, those instructions are only held up and sustained by the true gospel. It's right in the middle. Okay, so he's saying to us, this is how the church lives out the mystery of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the epicenter of our godliness, right? That's what he says in verse 16. It's a mystery of godliness. What's at the center of it? Jesus. If we get that wrong, we might as well not be doing any of this. If we get that wrong, we lose everything. And that's actually where the Apostle Paul turns next. He goes back to, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, so we're getting into chapter 4 now, he goes back to the false teachers. And listen to what he says. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay, wow, Paul. I mean, he's just just going all in, right? Notice that Paul says, some will. He doesn't say, some might. Okay? In other words, this is prophecy. This is revelation from God to us to expect that some people will depart from the faith. Now what's interesting is, and I don't have time to go into all of this if questions, this is not to be understood as people losing their salvation. If you want to talk about that, we can. Um, but I believe Scripture teaches that's not possible. So if you really are born again, if you really are in Christ, you're not going to lose that. So that's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's talking about people who once professed the true faith. People who said they were Christians, right? People who were part of the visible church. And yet they have now abandoned God's truth for lies. Okay. And it's interesting that he says these liars, in order to embrace and spread those lies, they needed to have their consciences seared. Which is a really interesting statement. That is a, um, in Greek, it's a medical term for having flesh cauterized. And so he's saying, in other words, their consciences have been anesthetized or deadened or desensitized. And I think what Paul is talking about here is specifically he's talking about bad leadership. He's talking about those who would lead people astray by spreading these false notions of the faith. And this, this is the practical reason 
why the qualifications for elders and deacons were listed in chapter 3 and why they're so important. When churches are led by people who lack character and integrity and a commitment to God's word, the result is not just that they, eh, they're just not as good as they could have been, right? He's saying that the result will be that the church becomes devoted to the enemy, not to Christ. You see that? This is a big deal to him. That's not hyperbole. He's saying this is going to happen. Churches will stray from the true gospel and they will become synagogues of Satan. And in direct relationship to what we learned over the last couple of weeks, he's talking about the importance of making sure that our leaders meet these qualifications lest we end up abandoning the gospel. You see that? Um, I've been listening to a, a podcast that explains the differences between historic biblical Christianity and the various cults that claim to be Christian. And sometimes, as I'm learning, the errors are sort of difficult to spot because the counterfeits look and sound a lot like the real thing. And if I'm the enemy, right, if I'm the devil, that's a good thing, right? I want it to look as close to the truth as I can so that even Christians might fall for it. So how do we tell the difference between biblical Christianity and false Christianity? And the... uh, the host of the podcast had this great illustration from the banking industry. It said, how do banks train their employees to recognize counterfeit money? It's not by focusing on counterfeit money, which is what I would have done, right? I would have thought, well, just bring in a bunch of counterfeit money and look at it and play with it, and then you know what it looks like, right? The problem is it's always changing. And they're getting better and better at making it. So you know how they train people to recognize counterfeit money? They spend a lot of time handling real money. They put them in a room with it. And they let them feel it. And they look at it under a microscope and with magnifying glasses. And they inspect the color and the feel. And they handle it so much that by the end of it, they become experts in handling real money. And then they're able to spot a fake when they see it. And I think that's exactly what the Bible is saying. We should become so familiar with the true gospel, so saturated in our knowledge of what God is telling us in the word about who Jesus really is and what he actually came to do. So familiar with it that we can spot false teaching a mile away. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hebrew Israelites, just to name a few. These folks talk about Jesus. Some of them use all the right words almost. 
And yet, those are counterfeit religions. And Paul calls this stuff the teachings of demons. But he's actually got a specific type of false teaching in mind in Timothy. And this is why I'm really excited about this passage. Okay, He talks about false teachers again in verse 3 who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, by the means of grace. Okay, so what Paul is describing here is a type of false teaching that results in a version of asceticism or what that means is holiness by rule keeping. Okay, so believing that you can become more holy by keeping certain rules. And these teachers were going beyond what Scripture teaches to to bind the consciences of believers with these new added rules. Specifically, Paul says they're telling people that God commands them to remain single and to stop eating certain foods. This is interesting because the Apostle Paul actually speaks to both of those issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8. And I want to show you this because I think this is a really important distinction. Okay, So first, let's look at the issue of singleness. This is chapter 7, 1 Corinthians verse 6. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, the clear preface. He says, this is not a command. Okay? What does that make this? We would call this a wisdom issue. Okay? It's not a moral issue. It's a wisdom issue. But he's clearly letting us know You have freedom in Christ to make this decision for yourself. You sense that in the text? You see that? Right? So, you're not a major league Christian if you remain single and a bush league Christian if you get married. It's not what he's saying. You see that? Okay. But these false teachers have somehow twisted this into a command. You know, you're going to be... More holy if you stay single. And Paul says that that is demonic teaching. Just that small step. I want you to see how critical this is. It's just that small step from wisdom and practical understanding to you'll be more holy if. 
You see that? It's so easy to do, but so critical to our understanding of the gospel. Now let's look at the second issue. Abstinence from certain foods. Paul talks about this in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 8. He says, Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. So in other words, back then, they would worship these false gods and they would have vendors on the streets that would sell um, food products that had been meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, okay? So, um, you know, to the goddess Athena, they would, you know, you pick up a, a, a skewer of meat that had been picked, you know, that had been offered to Athena, right? And this is what Paul says about that. They eat that food as really offered to the idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours, this freedom in Christ, that you have the, the freedom to do, right? Be careful that this does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Alright? So he's saying, in wisdom, be patient, let them catch up. Right? But notice that he's telling mature Christians to exercise wisdom with newer Christians, right? It takes time for a mature conscience to develop. And so this is, again, this is a wisdom statement by Paul. He's very clearly saying it's technically not wrong to eat this food. Because there's no such thing as Athena, right? It's not a big deal. It's okay. But... The mature among you should be patient with the weak. And yet what's interesting is, even this text today is, is manipulated by people in the church to hold standards that aren't biblical. The false teachers in Ephesus, the ones who are claiming to be the mature ones, are telling people the opposite. They're saying that mature Christians should avoid such foods while weak Christians are the ones who are going to keep eating. They flipped it. And that kind of thing should sound really familiar to us because it happens all the time in churches. All the time. And it may not sound like a big deal, but again, this is obviously a very big deal to Paul. He seems to think that the entire message of Christianity is at stake here. And he's right. Because when we twist issues of wisdom and preference into issues of faith and holiness, we are laying an axe to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. When we twist issues of wisdom or preference into issues of faith and holiness, we undermine the gospel. Now listen, there are some things, even in Paul's letter to Timothy, 
that Paul says are commands from God. This is how God wants his church to behave. That's also there. Okay, so everything's not a freedom in Christ issue. But we must be extremely careful not to speak where God has not spoken. Or to go beyond what God says or to contradict what God says, because when we do, we're actually robbing people of their freedom in Christ and we are threatening their understanding of the very gospel itself. It confuses the gospel message by saying that God accepts us in some way because of our works, right? But we know that God does not accept us into his household because of our works. Instead, he declares us righteous. He declares us righteous by faith in his son, Jesus. But what happens when you tell people that they they need to believe in Jesus, right? Probably the false teachers were saying that, right? Of course you got to believe in Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, right? But what happens when you say you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to give up things that God has not clearly said that you need to give up? What happens? We cast a burden on people that God has not cast on them. For instance, you might encourage people not to smoke for health reasons, but you better not try to tell them it's a sin. Unless they're underage. Then we can talk about it. You may choose for yourself not to drink alcohol, but you better not try to tell other people that drinking alcohol is a sin. It's not, by the way. Overindulging is a sin, just like overeating. You may choose to remain single, but you better not tell other people they can't get married. You may choose to put your kids in private school, public school, homeschool, But you better not try to tell other Christians that those other options are sinful. Moms, you may choose to work outside the home or to not work outside the home. You may choose to use daycare or not use daycare. Do you know why? Because you've got freedom in Christ and there is not a verse in the Bible that talks about either of those things. Now, all the stuff that I just mentioned, there may be wisdom issues associated with it, right? It may not be wise for you to drink alcohol under some circumstances. If that's been a problem for you or a problem in your family or whatever, I get it. But do not lay the burden on someone else. You see the difference? All of those things matter. All of them have importance in our lives. They're big decisions. Certain things matter more to others than they do to me. Right? That's okay. All of that's okay. Helpful, healthy discussions about all of that. Totally fine. 
but be careful of making it religious duty. This is a serious thing. It must be a serious thing because Paul says that this kind of legalism is the teachings of demons. It's not from God. Jesus himself said very clearly, it is not what goes in a person that defiles them. It is what comes out of the heart. Again, read the last two verses. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He literally says everything is good. Nothing is to be rejected. Be careful of twisting your personal preferences into laws. It damages the church. It weakens our witness of the gospel. Freedom in Christ is an essential doctrine. So if we're going to do what God has called us to do, it's essential that we understand that, but we must not add or subtract anything from the word of God if we expect to have an opportunity to reach the lost. Because you will end up laying a burden on them that is not theirs to bear. One of my fathers in the faith likes to say that we all have a tendency to think that if we follow Jesus, we're going to miss out on something else. You ever felt that way? Like if I choose to follow Jesus, if I make my life about Christianity, then there's all these other things that I'm going to have to give up, right? We all have that tendency to think we're going to miss out on something, that that Jesus is not really enough for us. And the way he puts it is he says, we think that God's law is like an electric fence around an amusement park. That, that God is keeping us from all the fun, right? If I'm going to be a Christian, then I have to stay out here and all the fun is in there. And that's what the world wants you to think. It's what the enemy wants you to think God is doing. That his rules are just keeping us from the fun. And actually what my friend says is that really God's law is more like police tape around a crime scene. He's telling us to stay away because it leads to pain and death. Everything he's told us to do or not do, it is actually for our own good. We may not see it. We may not understand it. Just like a two-year-old doesn't understand, they're not supposed to touch a hot oven. And it looks fun. But it's death. Every single thing he says, trust him. And we demonstrate our trust in God through obedience. Obedience that is motivated by grace, of course. The grace that we have in Christ Jesus. But if we add something else or take away something else, right? If you put on, if you put on it a rule that God hasn't given us, we're teaching people that Jesus isn't really enough for us. And that makes grace really hard to understand And it makes God seem less good. So be careful. Know the real thing so that you can spot the counterfeits. Let's pray. Our Father, you are good. Everything that you created is 
good. We receive it, your creation, with thanksgiving. We pray that we would saturate our lives with your word and prayer and the means of grace, that we would worship you from hearts that have been transformed. Father, I pray that you would help us to sort out the difference, that your spirit would help us to sort out the difference between things that are freedom in Christ issues, things that are wisdom issues, and things that are sin issues. May we be humble in our attempts to distinguish between those and patient with one another, patient also with ourselves. But may we be diligent as a church, as as. Christians to study your word to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong and between what is freedom and what is obedience. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Stand together.